Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 53 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Genius, Dean Ayers, and I'm joined as ever by my esteemed colleague, Liam Happ, sports journalist, and blue tick wanker on twitter how are you doing sir uh what today today i'm doing okay despite the circumstance doing right today as of next week i don't know we'll have to see how that goes because as of next week i'll be a homeschool teacher with my little soon to be four-year-old daughter so that could be fun or a nightmare uh, as long as you know the rear words the wheels on the bus then you'll be fine mate yeah how's it go again um, the wheels on the bus go round and round, bro. I was, I was adamant I was going to get you to sing it. I was close. Oh, uh, God, no. <laughs> and uh, we are, we are finally, we are doing a, um, we're doing a, a pay-per-view review. It has been a while, but we'll, we'll discuss why it's been a while in, in, a, in a moment. I'm very pleased to say that we have got a man who is a global ambassador for British wrestling, someone who, well, he and I started on our first show together back in 1993. He has travelled around the world, and it's my great pleasure to welcome onto Because WCW, Doug Williams. Good evening, Doug. Good evening, Dean. Good evening, Liam. That introduction, I thought you were going to say someone else there for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and um, and and how how are you doing in these strange times that we are living in? I'm actually okay because I haven't been confined to anywhere yet. Um, I'm still managing to visit the gym because they put a lot of sensible precautions in there. Um, we're just going to take it day by day, day and see how it goes. Um, the whole family uh, still out and about. No one's been confined, so um, well, let's see what happens, eh? So so far so good. Yeah. Well, yeah, I. Yeah. I I am I am in uh, in lockdown here in AS Towers, being a high risk diabetic man. So uh, I haven't gone insane yet, but uh, I'm sure if you check in in a few weeks' time, I'll have my pants on my head and a pencil up each nostril. I see. I thought that was your normal mode of operation. Only at weekends, Doug. Only okay. at weekends. <laughs> so um, so you. You were, of course, supposed to be at this moment in time, or just a few days ago. You were supposed to be having having a time in in Las Vegas, and that has all all been knocked on the head. Yeah, yeah, I was supposed to be there last weekend for the the Ring of Honor Past versus Present show. Um, I basically went to bed on Thursday night, woke up Friday morning to catch my flight, um, and on, uh, in my email inbox was a message saying, "Don't bother coming; the shows have been cancelled." So um, I never boarded my flight. Um, I'll give you a little, a little, little brief little story. Um, actually, it's kind of a silver lining in the cloud. I uh, had to go to the US Embassy to get my visa on Monday. Um, mm-hmm. and it was tight to get my passport back for. My original flight was for Thursday. Um, suffice to say, my passport didn't turn up on Wednesday. So I had to call the office and say, can you rebook my flight for Friday to get me there for Friday afternoon for the show? Um, so they did that. 
subsequently, had I flown on Thursday, I'd have flown home to Vegas and the show had been cancelled and I'd been stuck there until Sunday with nothing to do. So at least I didn't fly all that way for nothing. The silver lining, as you say. Yeah, oh, okay. kind of silver lining, yeah. So, you know, but, um, so I opted to spend the time at home and, uh, and, I didn't, and didn't suffer 14 hours on a plane. Nothing, so. <laughs> there, is, there is that, yeah, stuck on a plane in, in, uh, with, with lots of other people in, in a small confined area. Um, so I, I was going to, I was going to, um, I was going to ask, so obviously you, you retired last year, you had, had uh, your final match um, at Wembley Arena in, uh, with, with Progress, but cool. now you are still doing a few shows overseas, is that right? You're sort of, yeah, you, that's right. I mean, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm retired in the UK, definitely. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's a couple of reasons for it. Um, primarily, if you're off you know, free trips to places like Tokyo and Las Vegas, who's going to turn it down? <laughs> but no, aside from that, really, I think um, I touched on this in an interview I did with um, Mike Johnson from PW Insider. Really, when it comes to America, um, my last one there wasn't, you know, didn't end great. Um, and really, it's a little bit of redemption for myself to try and go back there and, and remind the fans of who I was and, and what I could do and, and you know, and, and not be their last memory of Doug Williams um, stuck at home for a year being a trainer for OVW um, so that's a little bit of why really um, I accepted these jobs from Ring of Honor um, it, you know it's just kind of it's I did it in Japan help them remind the Japanese fans of, of, of who I was and what I did there and, and hopefully I can do the same thing with the Americans when it comes you know <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it will happen one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I mean, you, you, at one point you were you were the television champion. I mean, you you beat AJ Styles on pay per view with the Styles Clash. And how? Yeah. What? What was there a reason? Anything behind the scenes that caused your the change of well, heart you, with you? You never get a definitive a definitive answer, do you? I wouldn't know necessarily, but I. The timing of it coordinates with the change in management and all the people that were on my side, all the people that backed me, Terry Taylor, Jeff Jarrett, Vince Russo, they all got fired in short order and a new management team came in. I think really that is what it's about, isn't it? If you're one of those guys and you don't get get a chance with the new guys, you know, I mean, it's not all one way. There's probably things that I could have done better. Maybe there's there's opportunities I could have taken that I didn't take. But at the end of the day, um, it is what it is. And uh, I was very bitter at the time when I came back to England. Pretty much hated the business and only stayed in it because I had to, to earn a living. Um, managed to build my passion for it back up in this country and remind the fans in this country that, that you know who I was and, and what I could do. Um, and it's just about going back and reminding the Americans that, that you know of who I was and what I can do with them, really. Yeah. The the day. And I mean, the style of wrestling that you promoted at the time mm. that you're over there, there are people you know in in America now who are that that style's a lot more prevalent, I guess, is what I'm trying to say with with YouTube and with other people adopting that style. It's it's is it good to see? That you know something that you started to popularise is is picking up steam across across America. Oh sure, I mean the the kind of the uh, the biggest moment of pride I have really is that 
it's recognised now still that the British wrestlers are pretty much the best wrestlers in the world. Yes. Um, you see them in prominent positions in, in every major company now, pretty much. And uh, I like to think I had some kind of uh, influence in that, you know, and some kind of influence in those particular people's careers and, and inspiring them to do what they do now. So, uh, yeah, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah, I mean, we've got your your good friend Nick Aldis, who is the NWA World Champion. We've got Marty Skrull in a prominent position in Ring of Honor and Mark Haskins. Um, NXT UK and obviously we've got uh, Drew McIntyre who at time of recording at least is scheduled to be headlining uh, Wrestlemania but if, if yeah. that goes ahead in the format and what, I mean what, what do you make of all this Liam have you been watching closed door empty arena wrestling for the last couple of weeks no I haven't and I'll level with you I haven't really watched WWE television with much frequency for a little while uh, I've been attending the Hooked On parties. Obviously, there's the first plug of the of the episode for Paul Benson Hooked On Wrestling. Um, and in this day and age, you've always got the benefit of, of YouTube. Like, if there is a particular uh, match or storyline development that's like, wow, I've got to check that out, you can easily just get the, the YouTube clip of it. So that's been the steady diet. Although I do want to check out the episode of Dynamite that landed last night. Yes. At, at the time of recording this, I should say. The empty in Dynamite with a few big debuts, no spoilers. And uh, uh, yeah, it just it, it's one of those things, though. You then imagine like just how good this week's Dynamite would have been if they had a live crowd. Yes. But, um, mm. I, it's I not mean, a thing because wrestling at its core is about working for the working for a live crowd, isn't it, at the end of the day? So it's a very, very odd situation. Yeah. Have, Having said that, Doug, I do have to ask because uh, what's we, you and I have both worked in front of some rather small audiences at the beginning of uh, our respective careers. What's the smallest live crowd you've ever worked in front of? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, maybe ten people. I've done a few. I've done, I've done a few. I've done a, we did a social club, which was like a part of a kind of. Um, kind of like a, a business park but it was like owned by a company and they own the business social club and they put on a, a a corporate event for their employees but no one turned up so that was that was interesting but worse than that i did a tour of cyprus in 2004 i think or five yeah and it was five days straight in the same arena this arena this arena massive arena in cyprus and the first day drew 20 people but literally the other four shows we did drew next to nothing i think the only people watching were the people employed by the arena to be there as stewards it was it was absolute madness absolute madness nice holiday though <laughs> and you know and, it was just, uh, you, and they wonder, went on with the shows they went on with the shows they they did they did the five shows i mean we were convinced after the first one they just cancelled them but they weren't they were they were Insistent, insistent, we did. And it was fine. It was just like a training session every day, you know what I mean? We just yeah. had fun, you know? Maybe and, they just thought on the each day, yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow will be the day that they turn up. Well, quite possibly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so the show that we are, we are looking at tonight, um, is from 1992 and it's WCW Super Brawl 2. Um, and this was this took place on February the 29th, 92. Now, 
we had intended to uh, do this in time to, to tie in with the AEW pay-per-view that, that had happened on February the 29th, 2020. But um, how do we put this one, Liam? We had some technological gremlins. Uh, how do I put it? I fucked up. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we 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 had a nightmare with the. I, I think we had to. It's one of the issues where we had stopped the recording halfway through to fix. Uh, I think my microphone wasn't coming through or something like that. So it was a stop start. It's in two parts. Oh, that's all right. In post production, you just marry it together. It's something I've actually had to do for one or two prior episodes and in this instance one of the halves was completely corrupted uh because there was there was actually when we did the stop start there was a error message and a restore job I managed to restore it I was like, oh thank goodness for that. i've got it oh no it's corrupt fuck's sake so yeah we we managed to get this big marquee guest on uh, do one the best ocw pay-per-views you know at the very least it's one of the seminal iconic those w pay-per-views are at a peak time for the for the product in in some ways and it's like a big deal and yeah i've ballsed it so thank you thank you to involved for agreeing to get this do-over going on yes because doug is the nicest man in the world he agreed to redo this with us and we can't thank him enough listen up slap nuts that's right this is jeff jarrett the chosen one and you're listening to because wcw now choke on that so let's get started it is super rule two we're at the mecca in milwaukee wisconsin which is a, a venue that kind of resembles a giant alexandra palace in london um our hosts are tony shivani and eric bischoff they talk about how lex luger has been in seclusion for the last three months maybe coronavirus um even though it's actually only been two um because everything in wrestling has to be exaggerated so there's a lot of big matches on tonight we've got um the marquee matches jushin liger v brian pillman for the wcw light heavyweight title ricky steamboat v rick rude for the u.s title where paulie dangerously is banned from ringside and the steiners v arn anson and bobby eaton for the world tag team titles plus of course lex luger v sting for the world title but before any of that jim ross is in the ring to introduce his brand new broadcast colleague jesse the body ventura who comes down the ramp on harley davidson and and this was a really big deal at the time after ventura had been out for two years i believe Lynn was that when he was suing vince mcmahon for backdated royalties it absolutely was, and that's what led to a lot of releases from the WWE side of things being ominously short on audio commentary track, such as, remember that, um, I got that big Bret Hart DVD set they did when they finally uh, extended the olive branch with Bret, and they did this anthology of Bret Hart stuff, and there's a couple of matches on this. Like, where's the commentary gone? Yep, that was that. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Fair enough then, but yes, Jesse got a nice, uh, nice pocket full of money out of that, and uh, I think he kind of concedes the future because he tells Jim Ross that if he had a cowboy hat on, he'd just look like just like J.R. Ewing from uh, Dallas. It's his fault. <laughs> yes, it's his fault. So we kick off with one of those famous seminal matches. Uh, which is Brian Pillman challenging Jushin Thunder Liger for the WCW light heavyweight title. Pillman comes out first. He's sporting a tremendous mullet, and it looks exactly like his son Brian Jr. does today, which is kind of 
weird in a way, in a way how much they look like each other. Um, Liger doesn't get much of a response coming out. The crowd do come to life a couple of minutes in, though, as Pillman catches Liger with a flying head scissors, which sends Liger to the outside. Uh, a few minutes later, he lands a moonsault body block off the top, and it's safe to say that the crowd are well and truly invested in this match. Um, crowd start chanting USA in support of Pillman. There's a pop for uh, another head scissors. Um, Pillman gets clotheslined over the top to the floor, only to have Liger dive on top of him from the top rope with a somersault plancher or moonsault, as Ross calls it. The crowd are on their feet at this point in time. Um, Pillman regains the advantage with a springboard clothesline from the apron to the ring. Liger falls to the floor. Pillman lands a crossbody block from the top rope to the floor, and the match has really picked up at lightning, lightning pace. Um, the, uh, the end of the match comes when Liger misses a diving headbutt off the top of uh, off the top rope. Pillman executes a rolling cradle with the bridge a la Bob Backlund to get the count three count in exactly 17 minutes and regain the WCW light heavyweight title and, and let Liger fly home to Japan without that belt weighing down his luggage. Um, Ventura has uh, declared this as the greatest aerial match he's ever seen in his life. Dark, would you agree with uh, with Jesse? Bear in mind it was 92 at the point in time. Yes, it's a good match. And when you watch it through um, through the eyes of someone in 1992, I can see how it would be, you know, kind of cutting edge and ahead of its time. Uh, stylistically, it's kind of matches you see every single day nowadays. But, um, I mean, the crowd reaction was phenomenal because they'd never seen anything like it, had they? And as you said, as the, as the match went on, the crowd are going absolutely crazy, and uh, it's no surprise. Um, it's interesting, really, watching it now and seeing so many of the, you know, wrestling modern wrestling tropes that we're that we're so used to being employed in this match, and trying to imagine how it was when when no one had ever seen it before. Mm. Um, it, it, it's quite quite bizarre, really. It's quite yeah. I can imagine how unique it was at the time, and. Uh, Good job on the commentators calling it as well, because imagine a match like that is very difficult to call if you've not seen that sort of style before. We're used to those vast array of moves. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you could tell from the commentating commentators' reactions that, yeah, they, they were seeing these moves for the first time themselves. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, you could tell kind of Pillman was a little bit... Uh, I wouldn't say he was a step behind, but he, he, he obviously uh, was trying to work... To, to Liger's style and pace, and there was just a little bit, had to play a little bit catch up, but um, it didn't hurt the match too much. I mean, something from a worker's eyes, you see, maybe the fan doesn't see that sort of thing. But um, it was good, it was, I really enjoyed it. And it didn't feel like 17 minutes either at all. No. no. And it, would you say it still holds up today? It holds up as a decent match. I wouldn't say it holds up as a, as a, in modern in modern wrestling terms, it doesn't hold up as uh, you know, a five star classic. But uh, if you watch it through the eyes of someone in 1992, it would it would be would be unique. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Liam, anything to add to that? Yeah, a few things. I mean, f first off, it's funny, Doug. You bring up a five star classic, but for me. Uh, this is a good example of why I've always had the argument that if we're going to employ metrics and star ratings, uh, 
situations like this where if if a match like that happens in 92 and it is absolute for the time absolutely mesmerizing state of the art you know advances the industry almost to to have people come out then and put uh, a five star rating I'm, I'm not entirely sure if Meltzer gave this five stars or or you'd imagine it was it was four and a half five star sort of territory that kind of tells everyone the, uh, the, you know, for the time period and the, and the audience at the time, uh, this this was the absolute mutts nuts. And I think I think some when you see things like six stars, seven stars, that, that kind of loses the whole purpose of giving something a metric. It, it it makes matches like this a little timeless. And another thing that makes matches like this timeless is the as you guys have already said, the crowd commentary. That point that was made earlier about how yeah, wrestling is primarily it's for the live crowd and just seeing the way they are reacting to it makes you realize that this is more than just a, a similar match from independent wrestling in the last five years and as far as the commentary goes yeah you you're absolutely right i mean i always remember uh a similar to, I, th- I think six months after this i want to say we had an infamous moment and jim ross was on commentary for this i think it might have been a clash of the champions when uh ron's when Ron Simmons debuted Too Cold Scorpio as his tag yeah. team partner, Scorpio finished off the match with the 450, and Jim Ross had the exact vocals and exasperation. To It was a soundbite. It's an absolute moment. It's the sort of thing that uh, Ronaldo wishes he could do and tries to do 50 times a match, but he can't produce it once. Uh, and that whole... The, the reaction to that... Again, you see 450 splashes all the time, but that reaction was amazing. And you had that here. And we always talk about the art of the opener, Dean. Uh, with something like this, we, we, we say, like, obviously, like a fast-paced, high-work-rate, electrifying sort of match like this is perfect. But more importantly, as, as established, the, the, the commentators don't know a great deal. The audience isn't completely into them, and they're not one of the top storylines. It had been established on TV because they mentioned it at Starcade when we covered Starcade 91. It had been mentioned that um, Liger had, had won the title from Pillman. And it, it obviously they'd had a couple of matches and they, they'd had some lip service to the to the storyline. Otherwise, it was nowhere near a, a dangerous alliance style storyline or anything. Uh, so these guys have come out there and pretty much snapped the crowd into it, which is, you know, the, the opening match slot is perfect for something that doesn't have a storyline and guaranteed yeah. crowd investment. You might as well save that for later on in the batting order, the big, the big hitter slots. So, yeah, this is the perfect lead off. Yeah, and um, of course the, the the as we've we've mentioned previously, the light heavyweight division could never live up to these standards after Liga then returned to Japan, and the actual the entire division was discontinued six months later, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, not uh, coming back until much later as the cruiserweight division. Well, we also did Wrestle War '92, which I believe it's the pay per view after this, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and that was interesting because they had so many big names in that War Games main event. We noted in that one. Go check that in the archives. It's one of our earlier episodes, like episode three or four, I want to say. Uh, check that one out. And there, there are I want to say three matches on the undercard from the light heavyweight division at a time where it looked like at least they're getting a chance to flesh things out and have more storylines than just a title match. Obviously, Bill Watts walked in like literally that week, and it didn't last very long. Okay, let's move on. Match number two. I'm sure we won't spend a huge amount of time on this one, but it's Marcus Alexander Bagwell against the Tailor Made Man. 
um, who is uh, Terry Taylor, of course, who you just mentioned previously, Doug. Um, oh, and of course, Scorpio, who we just talked about, was your uh, Noah GHC tag title partner, wasn't he? He was indeed. He was indeed, yes. yes. Did, did you, wouldn't that, there was a match in, I remember um, an FWA show, Morecambe. There's, I can't remember if you yeah. won the belts, lost the belts, or what, what happened there, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, we title? lost it. We lost it to uh, Minoru Suzuki and uh, Naomichi Marafuji. Um, yeah, that's where we yeah, lost the belts. That was a little trivia point for you both here that I'm, I think I'm the only person to ever hold um, two major Japanese tag titles and never defend them in Japan. Because I held, the, I held the GHC tag title with Scorpio. We won it in Japan, but then we never defended it and then we lost it in England. And oh, I won right. the IWGP tag titles in TNA with Nick. And then we lost them in TNA in the USA as well. So I never defended them in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I, I think that's. I'm pretty sure you'll be uh, unique in that claim to fame, definitely. Yeah, I know. I know. Oh, that's amazing. And of course, I remember at this that sort of time as well. You you were wrestling for Noah, but you were based still main, mainly in England. And and right. we had a lot of the the Noah guys coming over for extended tours of the UK. I remember. Um, right. There was uh, Mohamed Yone and uh, Takeshi Morishima among among the ones that really stick in my mind. Yeah, they, they, they were actually the first two that came over. Pretty much everybody came over, but there was a period, um, I think it was 05, 06, or 06, 07, where every month we had two new guys come in. Um, and so, yeah, we got nearly everybody, nearly everybody for a, at least a month. A few of the guys like Shiozaki and Aoki, they stayed, they liked it so much, they wanted to stay, they stayed two or three months. Yeah, yeah they, all, they all came through. They all came through and had the experience of working in England during that time, or the or Europe, you know, UK and Europe. Yeah, I mean, I remember um, Alki being, um, yeah, he was sort of a just finishing the young boy phase, wasn't he? He was just, he was still yeah. in plain black boots and black trunks and whatever. And yeah. yeah, he he was uh, he was excellent and uh, yeah, terrible what what we lost him so young. But um, I mean, did did most of them? Um, yeah, want to come over just because of the history of wrestling in this country as well? I, I don't I, Most of them came over because the office told them to. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> and some enjoyed it and some didn't so much. Like obviously, Shiozaki and Aoki loved it. That's why they stayed several months. Um, a few other guys were not that fussed. It's, it's, you know, it takes all sorts, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I think they appreciated um, that they got a lot of work and they appreciated that it was a vastly different style or what they did was vastly different to what they did in Japan. Um, you know, they wrestled in all sorts of sizes of rings against all sorts of sizes of opponents and all mm. different types of matches. So they appreciated that. Because as you know, in Japan, it's very, very, especially Noah, very, very conservative. Yeah. So, same, same type. Oh, hold on a minute. That's the power. Power and the cat. <laughs> They're having their own singles match in the background. Yeah, so they, they, you know, it's very conservative in Japan. They all wrestle the same style, and they're all very similar in in, in how they execute the wrestling. So it was, it was, I think it was a bit of experience for them doing all that. Sort of thing. Yeah, it's experience for them doing all that sort of, you know, different types. They were doing three-way matches, four-way matches. They were wrestling in cages, you know, TLC matches. They were ring, wrestling in 14-foot rings and 20-foot rings, and and all sorts. So a lot of them appreciate that, and it helped with development of their experience and, and their skills, you know? Yeah. That yeah. is a good thing. 
and it, and, it, and it just gave uh, gave the the, sh- the shows a, a you know a bit of a different feel to it when they were over. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, all the promoters loved using them. They all did exactly what they were asked to do, and you know the Japanese they all trained so well and all very professional. So the matches mm. were always always good. Right. Um, in case you are wondering what those noises are in the background, Doug does live in a bit of a menagerie with, is it? I'm right in saying four cats, a dog yes, and a parrot? A parrot and a dog, yes. Yes. So uh, there, there, may, there may be some uh, some background noise, should we say. <laughs> I, I just I just want to hear what the parrot has to say, you know. Ah, never lost the titles in Japan. Ah! <laughs> Imagine the things it picks up. He's not that polite, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes. Please calm down. We can carry on. Go on. Ex- excellent. So, yes, we've got match number two. Marcus Alexander Bagwell against the tailor-made man. Um, I do feel sorry for them having to follow the previous match. We've got the babyface in white trunks and boots against the heel in black trunks and boots. Um, and uh, we previously covered Starcade 91, where there was a tease of a bit of a, a babyface turn for Terry Taylor as he was working against Lex Luger in the tag match. But he's back to being a full-on heel here. Um, Bagwell's in charge for the first few minutes. Taylor's bumping around all over the place for him. Um, Taylor catches Bagwell off guard, sends him to the floor, delivering a big right hand to the jaw in the process. The story of this match is that Taylor is using his smarts and experience to try and control the match. Um, Taylor hits a top rope splash but only gets a two count as he's busy shoving his hands down in Bagwell's face and not hooking the leg. Um, Bagwell reverses a waist lock from Taylor and executes a rolling cradle similar to the end of the previous match but then Nick Patrick, the referee, counts three. Um, Taylor clearly doesn't kick out in time but then he lands his five arm in a DDT which I, I don't know if it was meant to be the finish but it was it was all a bit of a, a just a nondescript match but with a a weird kind of abrupt finish. Doug? Yes. Yeah, it strikes me as uh, uh, just going for the finish first. Uh, it clearly wasn't when it happened there. Um, but I think the the, the you know, five arm and the DDT was a post match was supposed to be post match for Terry to get his heat back. Um, I just don't think they expected it to happen so soon. Maybe mm. um, they had that interesting mentality where they just carried up. You know that kind of. <laughs> Oh, that, that wasn't supposed to pin. Pin. We'll just carry on with our, you know, with our moves. Nothing happened, but uh, it was too late by then, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The match in general was Marcus Bagwell was green. You could tell he was green. Uh, Terry was kind of leading him through it. Um, it was just I, the story they were trying to tell. Maybe wasn't executed fantastically, but I could see what they were trying to do. Yeah, Bagwell did look tremendously nervous as well. well I yeah, yeah. I don't know how. I mean, how long has he been in WCW? Oh, look. I think I think I might be right in saying that this was his first singles match on pay per view. Oh, right. I think he'd done just tags and six mans and stuff like that before, if memory serves me right. But um, yeah, I think I think it was his first singles match. I mean, when obviously you've yeah you know, you've wrestled on live pay-per-views before are they you know are they particularly nerve-wracking compared to tv tapings and the like not especially because you're you're given more you know you, you, the time you're given tends to be a bit more generous and uh I, no not from i've never never felt you know greater set of nerves doing that more than anything else really oh, okay um 
No, no, I don't. Yeah, the 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 kind of scale of the match gives me more nerves. You know, if you're in a big main event, wrestling for the title and you're headlining, probably ups your nerves more than than the show that you might be on. And I think, considering their position on the card and, and, and where they were, I don't think the nerves should have been that. Maybe it was his first pay per view that would probably put a bit of pressure on him, especially as yeah, he's so yeah. green as well. You know. Yeah, um, I don't think he was totally char- comfortable with that particular character he's playing anyway. Uh, <laughs> hadn't finally yeah. found his footing, had he, as, as to who he was? No, I think once he became uh, Buff Bagwell, I mean, we've and we've talked about oh. this before, Liam, haven't we? When he became Buff Bagwell, he looked far more comfortable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But talking about that sort of 92 to 98 uh, time jump, there was also a moment yeah. on commentary where Jesse Ventura said he's going to end up calling for his mummy. As it turns out, that won't happen until 98 either. Jesse Ventura sees into the future. He's, he's, he's like the Simpsons, isn't he? So the Simpsons calls <laughs> everything that happens, and so does yes. Jesse the body Ventura. <laughs> OK, so after Missy Hyatt gets a word with Lex Luger's manager, uh, Harley Race, it's time for match number three. Change of pace now is Cactus Jack v. Ron Simmons. Um, the camera goes to a sign in the crowd which says Cactus Jack for president. Well, uh, I guess it hasn't happened yet, but if Donald Trump can make it, why not Mick Foley? Um, about a minute into the match, Cactus catches his head between the top and the middle rope. The hangman spot, the very same move that caused him to lose an ear a couple of years later. Um, Ventura on commentary is disgusted that Simmons had continued to attack Cactus rather than help him out, which is classic Jesse Ventura slating the babyface in commentary. Um, we then see Junkyard Dog in the crowd for no apparent reason, looking totally out of place among the fans because he's wearing a tuxedo, or as Jesse says, looks like a waiter. Um, the match builds to the outside, which is obviously Cax's domain. He's in control, lands an elbow from the top rope, or sorry, the second rope to the floor on Simmons, which can't be any good for your hips. Um, the tide looks to be turning when Cactus runs at Simmons and gets caught with a spine buster on the ramp. Um, he holds the back of his head on landing, which is something he often did. Many other people didn't to sell the impact of a move on, on a hard surface. Um, the end kind of comes out of nowhere. Cactus leaps off the second rope onto Simmons, but Simmons catches him in his trademark power slam to get the three count in just six and a half minutes. Um, Abdullah the Butcher then comes to the ring, um, presumably to attack Cactus, but instead he nails Simmons in the back of the head with a kendo stick. Uh, and then surprise, surprise, we see Junkyard Dog walking to the ring, not looking like he's in any kind of hurry. Um, and local indie wrestler security try and stop him. We get a head butted out of the way. JYD then gets in the ring, makes the save for Simmons and cleans house, rips off his shirt, leaving him in just his bow tie and cummerbund looking like a terrible stripper. Um, and the close-up camera then reveals that he's also wearing jeans um, with a tuxedo, which I just wrote the note, who the fuck wears jeans with a tuxedo? This made me feel disproportionately angry at his choice for tyre. But that that aside, what did you make of this match, Doug? Um, I mean, I quite enjoyed it. It was basic, but, um, you know, both guys executed their, uh, their signature spots and... and, and, and... Uh, they work quite solidly together, considering what you probably expected to be a little bit of a Styles clash, but it didn't seem to be that way. Um, yeah, interesting finish really with JYD and uh, and uh, Abdullah the Butcher strolling down or hobbling down to ringside. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean it was what it was, wasn't it? It was a yeah, it was a solid match. 
Liam? Yeah, uh, for, for me, it just comes down to the, the simple premise of two uh, host types beating the tar out of each other. And I've always got a little bit of time for that, especially on a show that's given us two completely different matches up to this point. Uh, I can also appreciate them running six minutes. This was a, not so much now, but this was a, a problem early on on AEW Dynamite. And I suppose like some indie shows will have this problem as well. Is There's no problem. There's no harm in a, in a six minute match sometimes. There's no reason for every match to hit 12 minutes exactly. And that's what it felt because I was, I was reviewing like early Dynamite every week for the Indie Corner. Check out some of those old reviews and some of the great content on there week after week at the Indie Corner. .com, uh, and it felt like every match on the card went 11 to 12 minutes and there was no need for half of them. So I can appreciate these guys went out and, and, and hit their notes. Um, yeah. The whole Abdullah Cactus thing at this stage is a mess because, you know, if you're going into this, you obviously... You, the three of us remember those two as a team. We know they would always end up falling out and beating each other up and then be back on the same page. But um, commentary acting like they've had a somewhat of a major falling out before this pay-per-view. So if you're watching this back in retrospect, that's really going to throw you off because that's not normally the, the, the style of it. And so it's meant to be some sort of swerve that he actually hits... The, the, the heel actually hits the baby face. It really isn't to us. They act like it is. Uh, but they even they tend to get away with it a bit because, let's face it, as we've established on prior episodes, uh, the Cactus Abdullah pairing is fucking catnip to us. So <laughs> we love it. So we give it a pass. But, yeah, it wasn't Indeed. exactly at its best here. It was very confusing at times. Definitely, yeah. But I mean, yeah, six and a half minutes, crash, bang, wallop, and um, and then we go on to our next match, which is uh, match number four. It's a tag match of Vinny Vegas and uh, Richard Morton, who I think is probably the worst height differential since Peter Crouch and Sean Light Phillips stood on the sideline at Wembley waiting to be substituted together for England many years ago. Um, but they take on the team of Van Hammer and Tom Zenk. Uh, it, it feels really weird to see Kevin Nash with such a bad gimmick knowing what would happen to his career later on. Jesse Ventura, though, gets his first knock on Vince McMahon by asking, why is it that every guy I know named Vinny wears the ugliest suits I've ever seen and half a tube of Brill Cream in his hair? Um, anyway, I'm hoping that Morton and Zenker are in the ring for most of this match. Um, Jesse then says, everyone knows there ain't no money in bodybuilding, which is surely a knock on Lex Luger, given that he is heading to Vince McMahon's World Bodybuilding Federation straight after this night. Um, Vegas is wrestling in black trousers and open net white shirt and braces or suspenders for our American friends, which are very 90s in their design. Um, after a tussle between Hammer and Morton, our worst fears are realized as Van Hammer and, and Vinnie Vegas are in the ring together. Um, our worst fears are then confirmed when Van Hammer runs the ropes. Vegas jumps up for a leapfrog, and Van Hammer, for some reason, also jumps up and manages to headbutt a seven foot tall man in the groin. Um, eventually we get the combination of Morton and Zenk in the ring business picks up for about a minute so they both tag out and the big guys get back in um, the crowd are pretty much dead for this unfortunately but it still goes on Morton takes the highest backdrop you could ever wish to see from Zenk and a few moments later Zenk vaults up over a charging Morton in the corner for a sunset flip for the three count why these two just came for the finish was beyond me but a 12 minute match Doug what did you think of this one? There's a few interesting things about this. Um, I never realised Van Hammer was so huge. He was tall, wasn't he? Massive. Mm. I'm surprised he uh, 
didn't do anything uh, over in WWF land, really. Um, and I was quite impressed with uh, Kevin Nash's work rate at the start. He's throwing, throwing himself about and getting stuck in there, and he took the heat as well. You know, so he is uh, obviously uh, keen on working hard at some point. Uh, some, <laughs> obviously, someone got in his ear and said, listen, mate, you're seven foot tall. You shouldn't be doing all this stuff. You don't need to. Yeah. And to slow down the career. But, yeah, I mean, the heat went on too long. There wasn't enough of the light. You know, the, the, the real workers, uh, it was all kind of arse backwards in, in respect to that. Um, unfortunate, really. But uh, it, it just it just very oddly put together, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, I don't know if they were trying to because there was there's so many tag matches on this show in a row they were just trying to be a little bit different or trying to you know trying to showcase what the big guys could do but it, it kind of had backfired and the reverse effect it just showed up the big guys weaknesses really and their lack of lack of ability unfortunately yeah Liam anything to add to that yeah well you know what they say, Doug, about uh, chasing the money, so to speak. As far as Kevin Nash concerns, he, we all know a few years later he found the money, very much so. And at that point, I think he just used all those wads of cash to make himself a great big recliner chair. And that was it. There was no more chasing to be done. Um, this tag match, you know what this reminded me of? You remember the old uh, classic British game show, Bullseye? <laughs> and yeah, you know how the teams would be comprised of a competent darts player, a semi-professional darts player, and someone who can't throw to save their life. The yeah, non-darts um, Yeah, what unfortunately, they didn't have a general knowledge round for Van Hammer and Kevin Nash to try and tackle. Otherwise, it would have been fair. This is brilliant. I'm sorry, if, if we have any American people, uh, any American listeners here, and we do get a good proportion of our listeners from the United States, hello to you. You might want to go at this point, go onto YouTube and put Bullseye Game Show and see what the hell we're talking about. They've got the digital channels. I know there's plenty of classic British content to make swear there. They've even got like a, a BBC network of old BBC shows. So BBC yeah. aren't going to be showing reruns of Bullseye. That's one example, Dean, for crying out loud. You know what I meant. Jesus <laughs> Christ. But yes, I'm I'm pretty sure they get they get their fix. But yeah, check it out on YouTube if not. But they should be used to that. If 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 you are brave enough to keep listening to us from somewhere other than Britain, yes, we will go hard and heavy sometimes with the the Islander references. Uh, and that's one that's got to be up there with my um, pepperoni over Slim Jim. Uh, rants. See, at least we've got, you know, coronavirus is bringing us all together as one world. Yeah, except the people refusing to drink Corona beer. Ah, uh, more, more Corona beer for me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, dear. I love that analogy, the non-darts player and, and the non-darts player. And we've just come out of Starcade 91, the last pay-per-view, and a very recent cover for us on this on this podcast, where obviously it was filled, and there was one particular um, lethal lottery tag match that reminds me of this. It may have even involved one or two of these guys. Was it with Kazmaier and... Yeah, so Kazmaier and Liger, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah so so maybe they just thought, you know what, we're going to have another taste of that. We we didn't get enough. We need a, another fix. We're going to stick that on the Super Bowl card. Maybe that's what they're thinking. I don't know. Oh. 
Maybe. Okay, well, um, Tony Schiavone and Eric Bischoff then talk about the next match and the angle that started it all. So the next match is another tag, as Doug alluded to. It's uh, Larry Zbysko and Steve Austin with Medusa against Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes. And we we go back to uh, the angle that I hate and Liam loves from Halloween Havoc 91, uh, where Larry Zbysko broke Barry Windham's hand by slamming it in a car door as he and Dustin Rhodes arrived at the arena. Wait, wait a second, you hate that? Yes. Why do you hate that? Why do you hate I don't like it because it is so hokey because they just suddenly go to the, the parking lot that they haven't been to before and uh, and they just happen to happen to get there as they're pulling up and Barry Windham happens to just have his hand very very low down where the car door come can sh- slam for uh, to shake hands with Eric Bischoff and it all just seems really well really hokey they did that perfectly the shake hands bit i thought as for the fact that they were doing this interview at the cars here's another way to look at it then uh they decided the 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 kayfabe executives who are actually producing the show with with real wrestling matches happening um have decided you know what, we're going to do this thing and we're going to interview them as they arrive this will be cool and then on the first night of wheeling this out so, some pair of uh, ruffians come and break one of the wrestler's hands and forces a change to the show. And they're like, oh my God, we're liable. This is terrible. We, we'll have to scrap that. So, so it just happened on the first one that they did. That can happen. <laughs> it could happen. Okay. Well, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> So here we go. So we've got match number five, as I said. Zabisco and Noss in the Dangerous Alliance against Windham and Rhodes. Um, so, um, yeah, Ro- I mean, Rhodes and Austin would, would cross paths an awful lot in WCW. Um, this match does feel like a WCW worldwide main event, except we'll probably get a definitive finish rather than a DQ ending with the rest of the Dangerous Alliance running in. Um, Jim Ross is hyped up from, for this this match from the start, and it feels like the first match that the crowd have been invested in since Pillman Liger, really. Um, once Wyndham and Zabisco are in the ring together, Wyndham picks him up, doesn't pin him to get across the fact that he wants to punish him some more for what Zabisco did in breaking his hand. Um, the baby faces single out Zabisco, cutting off the ring, making frequent tags in and out to keep a fresh man in. Uh, the tide then turns when Wyndham misses a lariat attempt. His momentum carries him over the top rope out of the ring, where Zabisco hurls him into the guardrail and back into the ring. Um, Wyndham manages to tag out to Rhodes it's now the Hill team's turn to get heat on Rhodes um, the end of the match comes when Rhodes finally makes the hot tag to Wyndham Wyndham attempts a superplex but gets shoved off by Zabisco but Rhodes then shoves Zabisco off the top himself and as he gets up Wyndham nails him with a top rope clothesline for the three count in a match that lasts 18 minutes um, so a sort of a, a, a classic tag team storytelling match Cutting mm. one person off. Doug, what did you make of this one? Yeah, I enjoyed it on the whole, but it suffers from the same thing that all these tag matches did, really. And that was, I think the heat was overlong. And I appreciate they're trying to fill time. They've given a slot, but I just, it gets to the point where you're just waiting for the guy to, to, to make the hot tag and things to be changed up. Um, um, I do have to say that in this match, I did appreciate uh, Larry Zabisco's work. He worked really hard. Um, not so much of the walking and talking that he's, he's more famously known for. He did seem to take a lot of backdrops <laughs> in this particular match. But no, I mean, all these guys, they're really solid, aren't they? The work is, is really, really good. And it's just, uh, I just, 
maybe maybe the start of the early 90s in WCW was that of the prolonged heat. But, um, you know, kind of, that kind of took it down a little bit of a notch for me. But, uh, yeah, it's enjoyable but, otherwise. Yeah, and, and I think one thing I also noticed mm. was that you, when you consider the uh, experience of Zabisco and Wyndham and then the experience of, of Austin and Rhodes at this point sure. in time, Austin and Rhodes totally fit into this match and it doesn't it doesn't go down the notch when they're in at all. Yeah, that's a really good point because those guys are, what, two, three years in yeah. at most? And they look like polished veterans for sure. Um, so, yeah, they easily held up their end of the, their end of the bargain. And, um, I mean, that just, just goes to show you how talented they were really and... Uh, and where they and where they would go in the future. Oh yeah, yeah. You look at the yeah. careers they've had. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Liam. Yeah, I've I've got a pile on with the praise of Zabisco. Definitely, we we saw this a little bit with Starcade '91. I think I think we we drew attention to like how how animated Zabisco was. How um, you know he he was definitely taking more copious amounts of heel comeuppance for for lack of a more uh, technically proficient term for it, uh, and that's carrying on here. And I love the the, the little aspects as well, psychologically sound. Uh, just ha- how much he was having to go at the referee for the cadence of his count. Uh, he was making it clear that obviously we, we'd seen the angle leading up to it. Wyndham wanted his revenge. Zabisco at this point wants to just you know he's got the advantage in this in this vendetta. He wants to never see Wyndham again. He just wants to forever go on. Ah, break your hand and that's that. Uh, he wants to get this match over with. He wants a quick a quick incidental uh, free count out of the blue. Five minutes in or less. Dangerous Lance walk out there with a win. He's desperate for it before he gets the shit kicked out of him. And every time he did uh, take some licks, as I said, his facial expression, things like that, he he was glorious. He he was on a bit of a hot streak here, uh, which is funny because he he would not long uh, be put out as the as as the weak link of the Dangerous Alliance when that started to fizzle out. But for me, if anything, he's showing that. They they should have even without a dangerous alliance like after war games he he should have definitely stayed in a similar role because he was doing really well. Mm. Yeah, he um, and and I think also especially you know you look at the Starcade match. To me, he was just being a dick basically. He yeah. was just being a dickhead heel, and 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 I love a good dickhead heel, so all power to him. Um, we then go backstage to Missy Hyatt, and she's trying to get an interview with Ricky Steamboat, whose dressing room is being guarded by his ninja accomplice. So, to give you a bit of background on this, and do jump in if I get anything wrong here, Liam. Um, but basically, because Ricky Steamboat was in a feud with members of the Dangerous Alliance, and there's five of them, and they'd always play the numbers game and interfere in these matches, Ricky. Steamboat um, hired a, uh, a mysterious masked ninja to pretty much watch his back. And uh, I mean, I guess he'd had this ninja for what? It wasn't been that long, a couple of months, maybe. Yeah, there was no ninja at Starcade 91, was there? No. But then Starcade 91 was kind of where the thing with Rude started because uh, Rude got in his licks on Steamboat after they were eliminated or something similar, didn't they? Yeah. And then it came down to Sting and Luger. Yes, that's right. So, um, so yeah, this, uh, so this, uh, so he's got his ninja with him. Um, we see 
Steamboat in his dressing room, sitting on the floor, surrounded by candles, before Missy gets chased out by the ninja. Medusa then uh, approaches the ninja herself, unsuccessfully tries to, to uh, seduce him before she slaps him and gets chased off down the corridor by a, a very angry ninja. Well, we assume he's angry, we can't see his face. But um, match number six then is for the world tag team titles. It's the Steiner brothers v. Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton. And the first thing, as well, as you've mentioned, Doug, we've you know, our three tag matches are all bunched mm. together. And I mean, I'm, I've done this, and I'm sure you've done this plenty of times, where you, you know, you've got the matches on a card, and you, you sort the running order and the timings of the matches out. And if you've got three, three tag matches on your show, why on earth would you put them all together in a bunch? Yeah, I don't, I don't really understand that, but I guess there was reasoning for it. Um, yeah, who knows? Who knows why they did that? Uh, uh, Liam, it, it puts pressure on the teams to try and make each match different, really, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Uh, Very true, yeah. Um, Liam, um, can can you think of an answer as to why we had uh, three tag matches bunched together on the same card? I, I can't think of an actual answer, but to, 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 to weigh in on, on the whole situation here, yeah, you know, we're, we're not that far removed from a time where match cards would have three-quarter single matches. Obviously, when you go way back, there would have been a time where everything was a singles match. But um, even then, you have the same type of match in personnel, but you'd still see a lot more attempts to differentiate between what was happening in the match. But th this is not the case here. You could probably get away with running three tag matches. Hell, you think of uh, most Japanese... Because uh, obviously, the Japanese model, they have their events that build to the big event and what they'll do is it will almost entirely be tag matches that have feuding guys face off which obviously yeah, you know, that's, that's, yeah. That's, that's very much a supporting cast to the main events of the shows anyway isn't it yeah and, and they, as you say that they use those as tools to build interest in singles feuds mm. um and that's not really the case here though is it this, no, these are all no. matches that we established teams working tag team programs together you know? but, yeah yeah but, ev but even then they still do a better job of making those tag matches have an individual feel i'll give you an example dean you and i went to new japan royal quest last summer together and we, we actually had that conversation while we we're watching it mm -hmm. there were undercard yes. tag matches and and they all had their own individual flavor and yeah. they've made no effort to do that here in on super bowl 2 and that's that's the thing more so than old three tag matches in a row it's three very formulaic tag matches, and as we'll see, it has a bad effect on this one, the the world title tag team match, the the big one of the three, because for me, it actually struggles to follow the the heated and entertaining grudge match before it. Sure. Yeah, sure. very true. But um, I must uh, must tell you both that unfortunately neither of you have got any points. The answer on my card to why there were three tag matches bunched together, the answer was because WCW. Oh, yeah, no, no, that can't that can't be right, Dean. I mean, we we'd have used that before if that was the case. <laughs> so um, the Dangerous Alliance come out with Paulie Dangerously, but Gary Michael Capetta announces that WCW Executive President K. Allen Fry has just declared that Paul E. Dangerously is banned from ringside for the entire match. 
Um, he is obviously none too pleased. So the Steiners capitalized on the effect of this announcement by controlling the offense for the first five minutes or so. It's a mix of power moves and mat work. Anderson is, as always, superb in selling the power and the intimidation of the Steiners. Um, in one good spot, Scott is on the ramp and bounces Eaton off the ropes before executing a tilt-a-whirl slam on the ramp, although it's a bit too close to the camera. He doesn't quite catch it all. Um, at another point, Eaton gets caught trying to vault over Rick in the corner. Rick catches him on his shoulders and Scott clotheslines him to the canvas. Um, the heels finally take over about 10 minutes in when Eaton catches Rick low behind the referee's back. Um, and we have tremendous teamwork and double team trickery from uh, Eaton and Anderson. But then what else would you expect when you've got two of the greatest tag team wrestlers in history together? The crowd are loud when the Steins are in charge, but the, when the heels take over, they're quiet, just as, as opposed to getting behind the baby faces in peril. Um, Eaton lands a top, big top rope knee drop onto Scott for a two count. In another great spot, Anderson turns a body scissors from Scott into a Boston Crab. Anderson later slams Scott onto the ramp, helps Eaton come off the top with a rocket launcher splash onto Scott. Um, finally, Scott makes the hot tag to Rick, who cleans health with Stein lines on both, but then Rick gets caught on Anderson's shoulders, but he catches a diving Eaton and switches it spectacularly into a mid-air belly-to-belly suplex. Um, Medusa then throws powder into Rick's eyes and he accidentally suplexes the referee while he's blinded. Moments later, a second ref comes in and Scott hits a Frankensteiner on Eaton for the three count after 20 minutes. The referees then confer and the decision is reversed due to Rick striking a referee. The Hills therefore retain the titles by the skin of their teeth, although Ross and Ventura later point out that it was actually Rick Steiner and Arn Anderson who were the legal men in the ring. Um, Doug, what, how do you find this one? Well, I enjoyed the match, obviously, because it's four tremendous workers. I love the Steiners anyway, so it was very physical, hard-hitting. Um, uh, as for the finish, it was a little bit messy, I'd say, but it was, I guess, it got the desired result um, that they were trying to achieve without, you know, trying to bury the Steiners. Um, no, no, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I was kind of worn out after three tag matches, but there you go. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> as you said, um, no, no, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. That that the belly to belly off the shoulders was a little bit touch and go. You just got about about get away with it, I think. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's it's typical kind of a typical Steiners that they try kind of new and, and innovative things like that. Really, so it was a uh, it was nice to see it. Well, yeah, I always remember them. I mean, this time, the yeah, 91, 92 time when, you know, they were the, the easily the, the best tag team in, in America, if, if not yeah. the world at that time. And they weren't content to sit on their laurels. They're always, like, as you say, they're always adding things. I mean, you know, the Frankensteiner was a rel relatively new innovation from Scott and the guy of his size doing that was pretty spectacular. Yeah, it's interesting seeing them selling as well because, don't see them selling that much, really, the Steiners, if you watch them. They're very much uh, on top babyface team, if you, if, you, if you know what I mean. Yes, yeah. They get over on the excitement of their offense as opposed to gaining sympathy from the crowd by, uh, by fighting from underneath. So it was interesting to see Scott take the heat. But also, going from you know, what you said there, one thing I'd noted was that, you know, the crowd were quite quiet when they were selling, I guess, because they're not yeah. used to seeing it. Well, yeah. exactly. I think they don't actually believe 
anyone can take Scott down and work him over in that fashion. <laughs> Liam, what do you make of this one? Yeah, I mean, I kind of showed my hand on my thoughts for it before you actually got into the play-by-play there. And yet, that, that is a really good point as far as the, the, the lack of reaction during the heat period. But what I will add is is one thing that stood out to me, and this is a, an outside of the actual match thing, and it's another sign of just, it's just ridiculously bad consistency levels from WCW, is if you go back to the tag match before, and there's, there's, uh, there's no Paul Heyman, uh, and the commentary, if I remember correctly, commentary actually wondered aloud. They said, why is Paul Heyman not here? He's banned for the US title match, but as far as we know, just that match. He has two other, you know, two other matches with his guys in. Uh, why, why is he not here? Now, with the benefit of hindsight, you could say that's foreshadowing for what happens in the US title match. But then they have him come out and they even did the segment where, you know, if you already know watching that segment backstage, you can kind of use your benefit knowledge to make out his voice doing doing the grunts of the ninja saying you, you can't get past and stuff. So they're building all to this and then he just comes out normally dressed and gets sent straight back. And it's like. You know, what is the point for that? And sometimes it will sound a little bit comic book guy with picking out on these little things. And But at the end of the day, you know, I might, I might just be a fan and not an actual wrestler. But I can tell you as, as someone who actually, you know, will, will decide whether or not I'm going to buy these things. If if companies are that spotty on the logic, what, exactly what they're telling me is I don't have to watch week in, week out. I can just jump in and out as I please. Nothing will matter. So, you know, I'm not going to miss anything because it'll be over the shop anyway. And you know what? That's exactly what I'm going to fucking do. I'm just going to swan in and out. I'm going to YouTube stuff rather than actually paying for the product. Uh, and that that's what happened. And, and history has shown that companies with the, with the amount of logic gaps that WCW had and other companies... Uh, I've had when they when they failed. That's the sort of thing, and it is, that was just a particularly frustrating case of it for me. Yeah, you you got to be uh, you got to be invested in it. Yeah, people people try and write it off as a minor thing that doesn't matter, and you know a lot of wrestling fans, if they draw attention, they get dismissed and they get uh, ridiculed. But at the end of the day, they're just not, they're not going to watch and they're not going to pay for the product on a consistent basis because they're being told they don't have to. No, absolutely, definitely, yeah. Um, okay, so an advert then runs for the next pay-per-view, WrestleWar 92, which features the best war games in history, in our humble opinions, and we covered that way back in episode four of this podcast series, uh, back when we sounded like we were locked in the toilet. Like? Sounded like? Back when we were recording these locked in the toilet. The original um, so sort much- of isolation. <laughs> Indeed. Um, match number seven. It's the U.S. heavyweight title as Ricky Steamboat with the Ninja def- uh, challenges the champion Rick Rude. So the champion comes out first, which is unusual, but more significantly, he comes out alone because Paulie Dangerously has been banned from ringside. Um, Rude is greeted by a chorus of boos as he does his usual pre-match promo and has to stop talking several times because of it, which is just tremendous heel heat. And it's, I I was going to say it's something you don't get these days, but I think the only two people off the top of my head I can think of that get this kind of heel heat in the modern era is either Zach Gibson in NXT UK or MJF in All Elite Wrestling. Um, 
it's also tremendous because WCW actually mic'd up the crowd properly, uh, which they haven't always done. So Ventura complains on commentary that Steamboat is allowed to have the ninja with him at ringside, but Rude isn't allowed to have anyone with him. Um, the chemistry between these two is great. Um, they both sell each other's offense really well, and their characters are absolute polar opposites too. Um, there's a great moment where Rude hits a crossbody block on Steamboat, and both men are clearly supposed to go over the top, but they fail to make it. Quick as a flash, Ross says that the top rope saved them, and Jesse says that if they'd fallen to the floor, the match could have been over. Um, Rude takes charge of the match after nailing Steamboat with a hard clothesline, but then uses his left arm, which Steamboat's been working over. He sells the pain of landing the move so well that he's unable to take advantage of the fallen Steamboat for a moment. Um, he's also unable to pose like he usually does, so has to give his uh, adoring public a one-armed version of his uh, hip gyration. Um, Rude dominates the second half of this match, with Steamboat selling getting more and more desperate as the match goes on. The momentum Momentum then shifts to Steamboat, who makes frequent pinfall attempts in to sell his desperation to, to try and win that title. Um, the conclusion of the match seems Steamboat climb to the top, land one of his trademark chops. He then goes to climb the opposite corner when the ninja jumps onto the ring apron and gets out a chunky 90s cell phone. He nails Steamboat in the head with it not once but twice. Steamboat falls into the ring. Uh, Rude crawls over to Steamboat, drapes an arm over him for his match-winning three count after 20 minutes, and the, nin the commentators state that the ninja has therefore got to be poorly dangerously, and I, I guess that we're, we uh, expect that he switched places with the real ninja after he chased the producer off earlier. Doug, what were your thoughts on our, uh, our semi-main event? Well, um, call me controversial, but uh, I think this match could have done with a smidgen of time cut out of it. Um, there was quite a bit of period there where they were just, some would say, working the arm and uh, building the psychology of the arm on Rude, but it was just being held. I found it boring. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I appreciate what they were trying to do there. And uh, given what's coming up in the main event, they may have been asked to fill out the time. And I was to think uh, they'd had a hard match, ma uh, match as well earlier in the year. Or previously, it was maybe a throwback to that. Uh, that was Beach Blast 92. Was that the... Right, okay. Liam, was okay. that right? Very much so. We had uh, so, Greg yeah, so that's, for that, didn't we? That's right, yeah, yeah. So that's a few months yeah. down the line still to come at this point. Oh, okay. So maybe they were they were, they were were kind of foreshadowing that a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, basically. I, I think, uh, yeah, the heat that, that Rick Rude drew at the start was... Phenomenal, and they mic'd that almost perfectly. And he played it perfectly as well. He didn't try and cut through the crowd. He let them wear themselves out before he continued on. Too many guys nowadays rushing to get their promos out, trying to ignore what the crowd reaction is doing. But he just let it play out because he knew it was maximising the effect of him as a heel on the screen. And the people watching at home really appreciated who they were watching and, and what the crowd actually thought of him. Um, uh, the other aspect of the match obviously is a finish, the importance of that, and uh, I quite like the fact that uh, the ninja didn't get a clean shot the first time, Ricky Steamboat didn't really sell it, so he smacked him again, and then he took the fall there um, so many guys nowadays would just sell the first one you know, even though it with nothing but fresh air, so I quite like that in real life it would be scrappy like that as well if someone tried to hit me with a phone wouldn't it? 
That's interesting. <laughs> and it was kind of awareness by Ricky Steamboat that the camera was right there to capture the moment. So he couldn't make it look look pony. So he, he yeah, waited yeah. for a second one. So it was good good play by, by all guys involved. Yeah, good thinking on the, on his feet by uh, by Paulie sure. as well. Sure. And the the thing that I love with with these two, and I, I guess it's yeah. a similar thing to to Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat as well, is that the two characters mm. are so absolute opposites. Yeah, you got Ricky Steamboat, the career long baby face, the family man, never breaks the rules, and then you've got the the ladies man, the sleazy Ricky Rick, Rick Rude. It's they just play off each other so well. Mm. Oh, definitely, definitely. And they get their characters over as individuals as well because of that, don't they? There's no, there's no, you know, there's no ambiguity on on on, on how that who they are and what they represent. It just comes across so perfectly on the screen. They both know their characters so well. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree on the on the rivalry stance definitely. Um, mm. There's a, a get a, it's a phrase that's been used a few times by all three of us, but modern wrestling hasn't had enough of those. Off the top of my head, the one that really stands out that's come close to giving us that in in the post WWE era would be Jeff Hardy and CM Punk. Strange enough, we're talking about ten years ago now, where that I feel like we were robbed of they they could if, if Jeff Hardy had stuck around I feel like they could have probably feuded with each other for a year to two years in the end they just had that one summer feud and then Jeff left but that was such a natural rivalry there uh, and there's not enough of those really is there um, no. so yeah the, the the two shot on the phone I love that yeah one one to phase him and the second to twat him that was perfect I love that. <laughs> um, the, the the match, yeah. I mean, knowing knowing that we've covered Beach Blast and knowing what we went into, I mean, for for those who haven't gone back and listened to that, honestly, Dean and I are in agreement. It's it's one of the better little. We'll have some silly moments and we'll reference mm. uh, Bullseye, and in other episodes we'll reference Jimmy Savile, a frightening amount of times. But we love <laughs> we do love a nice bit of serious discourse. And one of the best ones we had was um, convincing Greg Lambert that the Iron Man Challenge was a great match. And listen to that and, and, and check out the detail why it was a it was a great bit of discourse. It was all Ooh. all above board, and it was like fair points. So you know it was good stuff. And this. This is, as you touched upon, guys, this is the, the first act of that rivalry. And, yeah, it's it's a slow start. It's a slow burner. But I think the, be, the best way I can defend that is to say that, you know, you have matches where they don't do enough and you can call it boring, and they don't reward your patience after that. But at the very least, they do reward your patience here for that early goings by stepping it up. Mm. Um so yeah, for for me it's a good match. The the Iron Man Challenger gets much better because the 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 slow pace makes sense in the context and they do more with it. Sure. But yeah, but sure. yeah, I, I absolutely enjoyed it. It's on a pass foul, it's not even in question. Uh, yeah, it's good stuff. Cool. Okay, we then go backstage to Missy Hyatt, who's trying to get a post-match interview with Rick Rude. She opens his dressing room door to see the entire Dangerous Alliance in the room with an unmasked Paulie Dangerously in a ninja outfit. Um, her acting in this segment is atrocious, but then again, it's been awful throughout the whole show, so at least she's consistent. Um, <laughs> these segments were actually filmed a week before the show, so bear in mind that these must have been the best versions that they recorded. Oh dear, it's crazy. I can't, I can't get over how the show as a whole and how it's presented in the arena is is a reasonably serious sports-based presentation 
and her her segments are just so out of whack with that. Mm. And they're so over the top and cheesy and awfully acted. They just don't don't fit with the rest of the show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's. I remember there's another pay per view. I can't remember which one, but she yeah. um she's trying to get an interview with Stan Hansen and in his dressing room, and he basically like ch- comedically chases her out of the dressing room with chewing tobacco coming out of his mouth, dripping down his chest. And, Havoc, and he, Havoc 90. And yes, Dean, I'm getting your hints. We will cover that bloody show. Was that the pay-per-view? Okay. Yes. yes we do, uh, no, we you do need cover to one. cover that show. Yes. That is a fun. That's, that's the Steiner's <laughs> nasty boys one, isn't yes. it? That's fantastic. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm waiting to see. Someone must uh, be doing a continuity check to see if everyone's wearing the same tights in the uh, backstage segment that they're wearing on the paper. So anyway, we come to our main event. Match number eight for the WCW World Heavyweight title. Sting challenging his uh, former good friend Lex Luger with Harley Race in his corner. Sting gets all the pyro coming out. Luger uh, comes down the ramp looking much, much bigger than he usually did as he's clearly preparing for his signing with Vince's World Bodybuilding Federation. <coughs> um, the, the commentators note that he has uh, bulked up in his time off. <coughs> Oh, yeah, I've got that cough as well now. Um, he looks <laughs> he looks even less bothered than usual. Um, they stare down and talk at each other for a good couple of minutes. I, I wish I could lip read, but it's an awful long time. Um, finally, we get some physical action in the ring. Sting hits an early Stinger splash, but Lugano sells it and charges back with a hard and fast clothesline. Sting briefly gets Lugano up in his own torture act move uh, with five minutes into the match and the bulked up ring rusty Luger is already looking knackered um, Sting tries for the Scorpion Deathlock but quickly Luger scrambles to the ropes he's looking exhausted as the commentators state how he's sweating profusely while Sting isn't Luger gets back on the offence which is strike based slow and deliberate after a press slam he signals for his attitude adjuster pile driver which he lands but Sting kicks out after Luger doesn't hook the leg um, Ventura on commentary also says that Luger didn't get all of it as a way of compensating for the champion. Sting gets a second win following this, goes back on the offense himself. The end of the match comes when Sting goes for a cross-body block, but misses and sails over the top rope, but fortunately lands on his feet. Harley Race then tries to pile-drive him on the floor, but Sting counters with a backdrop to enable Harley to take his contractually obligated pay-per-view bump. Sting then climbs to the top rope, lands a top rope crossbody block on Luger to win the match and to become the new WCW World Heavyweight Champion. And the crowd pop pretty big and there are Sting banners all over the place, whether they've been planted there by management or not, who knows. But it looks like a fantastic scene at the end of a, a brief match. A brief main event, wouldn't you say, Doug? Very much so. It seems to be over before it even started, really. I think... Uh... The time quoted uh, kind of belies um, how it feels when you're watching it. I think that period at the start where they're chatting to each other casually <laughs> about what they had in catering, um, <laughs> whatever it might be, probably uh, probably takes away a lot from it. Um, and then the match starts fantastic. I think the intensity shown by both guys in the first few minutes is great. I don't know what happens. I think Luger kind of runs out of steam, blows up a bit, and it, it kind of falls off a cliff from there. Um, and it just kind of plods along. Um, Harley Race takes the best bump of the night, of course, you know. Um, 
and it, it just kind of a damp squib really on the whole on the whole on the whole show. Um, it's unfortunate really, but uh, it starts so well and it kind of just drifts off. Yeah. And you'd you'd think, yeah, given that they are good friends in real life, and even that was acknowledged in the commentary, you'd think that mm. Luke would want to put his mate over strong to set him up nicely, but seemingly not. Well, I don't. Uh, yeah, actually, a lot of wrestlers is on putting you over, and that and that's enough. You know what I mean? It's, they don't think of the intricacies of how they're going to get to that end result. At the end of the day, he was going down, and, and Sting was winning, and I think that's probably all that he cared about. He was prepared to do the job, and that's what he thought. Um, you know, he, he, the the idea of uh, we're going to have a fantastic match, and I'll make you look a million dollars is probably the furthest thing from his mind at that point. Um, not so much because it affected Sting, but probably because he didn't really want to give the promotion the benefit of that kind of, um, uh, you know, work. Not that he could probably do it, considering he was so jacked up anyway. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, they probably did the best, given the circumstances. And I suppose seeing as he's going, yeah, he's, he's going to a Vince McMahon promotion, he's not going to want to give WCW a bigger a rub of the green as, as, as he can. Fair, fair okay. point there, yes. Right. Liam, what were your thoughts on the main event? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been in situations where I've been at a job that I've, I've given him my notice on bad sleeve, and I can assure you my, my workload, my work production rate is, is not that great. <laughs> and, uh, even your be- and even if you've got your best mates at work, you're not going to get out of your way to help them out, are you, necessarily? You'll do the best to, to make sure they're okay, but then... <laughs> You're not yeah. going to go and be above and beyond, are you, necessarily? Well, we've all been in that position where it's been like, you know, yeah. uh, you're on your way out, but make sure uh, make sure Gary has, uh, knows what he needs to do when he takes okay. over your yeah. assignments. And, yeah. and we turn around to Gary and we say, all right, Gary, just, you know, just press this. And they ask, they, they ask about five follow-up questions. So, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Uh, you know, if that happens, just ask Carol, you know, she'll take care of it. And that's literally the... Uh, the the effort levels we're getting at Lex Luger here. And all, and all Gary will do is bury you when you left anyway. So exactly. And Lex Luger is putting in a oh, just ask Carol performance here. Um, <laughs> and as you guys said about it being brief, and you know what? It wasn't brief enough. I, I have to say, I wouldn't have felt ripped off if that match, had, if, if I could have gone in with, like, like I will post-produce these episodes of podcasts, if I could go in and, and scratch off that long chat, Hulk Andre it wasn't, Rock Hogan it wasn't. I don't even, you know. I don't even know what they were thinking there. Were they trying to replicate that, that Hogan-Andre moment? Because it didn't certainly feel that way, did it? Right? No, they, they had the history and the rivalry to have done like a bit of a stare down the chat. If it had been like 10 seconds long, you know, trim it down to 10 seconds, get to that first yeah. few minutes. Have we all agreed? Great. <laughs> little, you know, that stinger splash clothesline bit, stealing each other's yeah. finishes, all great stuff. And then uh, as soon as Lex Luger blows up, go to the crossbody, give races bump. Obviously I'm not trying to take that off the table, Dean, don't panic. But yeah, uh, no, yeah. Oh well, he, he has to have his bump as well, as we've covered. He, that bump has to happen, whether it's the has best to. bump or it's, a bump. Harley Race. It's in has the contract, Liam. It's in the contract. Yeah, I think it's in the contract. And when we were praising Larry Zabisco earlier, maybe we should have said that Larry Zabisco was taking inspiration from Harley Race. I was listening to a podcast earlier, and they said this is what they said: that every match he has to feel the sting of the canvas. That's his obligation. <laughs> Harley Race, every match he has, he has to take a bump of some sort. I don't know if he's got it written into his contract. Who knows? Yeah, we'll have 
that's, that's been the prevailing opinion, and this is another strong piece of evidence. But but yeah, they could they could have trimmed that match down to like I mean we've we've made this argument for Starcade '97 in the past. Sting Hogan under the circumstances have Sting kicked the shit out of him, kick the shit out of a bunch of um, NWO guys run down, get the win, run it in five minutes or less. You can still find a way to excuse. Uh, a, a rematch at Super Bowl where you can work an actual match. In this instance, especially with Luger leaving, just just run the truncated version. They, what people want here is to is to get the belt on Sting. They want the pop for Sting, and the pop for Sting was good. And yeah. the office wanted to get Luger written out and to move on to to the next, you know, to get onto the dangerous alliances, the Vaders, and things like that. So why does this have to run even 11 minutes? It really didn't have to. Yeah. Well, uh, um, I mean, oh, well, overall, um, just as, as a, a footnote, by the way, um, Sting would um, only hold the belt for a few months. He'd then drop it to Vader at the Great American Bash 92 in the summer. Um, but overall, would you uh, give this a thumbs up or a thumbs down, Doug? Probably thumbs in the middle, to be honest with you. It had some good moments, but it kind of dragged in the middle a little bit with the, with the tags and... Uh... You know, it was it was it was okay. It was just just okay. One fantastic match, and that was it. Liam, yeah, there was there was definitely more to enjoy than to think. Why am I watching this? I'd give it a thumbs up on that basis. Um, mm. And more importantly for me, what what really helps the gleam of this is it could be. This is for for a lot of people. This is. This is WCW in a nutshell here. You've got Sting and Luger in the main event. You've yeah. got Rude. You've got Steamboat. You've got the Steiners. Uh, this, this, for a lot of us, we always talk about the WCW Worldwide ITV era. This mm-hmm. is what WCW is. This this pay-per-view embodies that essence of it. And I completely understand if there's a few uh, old WCW fans who, who felt it captured more by the peak of NWO. That's completely understandable as well, Goldberg and that. But for me, this, this, this was that first cultural zeitgeist they had and they only had two they had that early 90s vibe where they had so many marketable guys until they spaffed it up the wall and hogan bailed them out and then they had the uh the new old old era which was obviously shit hot mm-hmm. cool okay well um yeah I, i'd give it a thumbs up myself i think the the uh, rude steamboat and the uh, Liger Pillman matches are enough to to carry it over the line for me. Um, so before uh, before we let you go, Doug, we ask sure. all of our guests um, to select a a tune from the uh, WCW entrance music archives. So uh, mm-hmm. so Liam, if you press play, and Doug, tell us what you've chosen and, and why you chose it. chosen uh, Lord Stephen Regal's music um, pretty much you know he was uh, uh, the first British wrestler I saw on the American circuit outside the British Bulldog 
and I really appreciated the kind of style that the, the more roughhouse uh, technical style that he presented, less of the cartoonish character that, that the Bulldog presented. So uh, I always enjoyed watching Regal in WCW. Was, um, yeah, definitely different, and, and kind of gave you a, um, a better, better kind of appreciation of that European style, heavyweight style that we're kind of more familiar with now. Is it fair to say he was uh, an inspiration to you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely an inspiration into um, what you can achieve, you know, if you, if you, if you work hard enough and, and you can get somewhere outside of just, just working in, in the UK. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I, I remember, um, I think it would have been 93, and it was WCW Worldwide, and just randomly the they had a main event match of... Um, of, uh, he was just called Steve Regal at the time, Steve Regal and Barry Windham. And yeah, I remember falling, nearly falling off my chair thinking, what on earth is this guy that I remember seeing him on, on the old British wrestling um, in, in a, a Big Daddy tag match and then later on um, being uh, attacked by Robbie Brookside after he was hypnotized by Kendo so Nagasaki. So it was an infamous match, wasn't he? The hypnotizing yes. match, he was part of that. Yeah, and there he was on WCW Worldwide in, in the glory, the glory days, the era that we we're just talking about, the night, the uh, early nineties. That's it. That's it. Exactly. Marvelous. And um, some, also, Liam, I think some some of the uh, some of the uh, turns of phrase that he would come out, with, you know, very uh, just just as we've been saying about very British turns of phrase that the American audience wouldn't be familiar with. Yeah, for me, Dean, that's actually one of those things on a long list of aspects that fans picked up on and appreciated when someone did in WCW. But then they would that 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 wrestler would do it again in WWE, and they would pounce on it and really accentuate and promote it. Where because I remember when when he obviously had that little spell as the, as the real man's man, but when he really uh, hit it off in WWE as as William Regal, he was they, they really had him use those words a lot. And I know sometimes it can be hammered down your throat, hammer, but obviously there's a there's a method to WWE's madness, and it tends to work. And because he he, he was so good with his turns of phrase and because he stood out it really made that character memorable he was a he was a commissioner before long he was that influential on the off the screen things and they took that character that was there in WCW and they just absolutely emphasized it and they showed that like WCW had once again overlooked someone but as far as this actual theme goes I have to say this is this is pretty generic stuff but it's also quite memorable at the same time this is this is perfect wrestling theme fodder it suits him it's nothing over the top you know there's so many people use like actual themes and you have you have people who have uh, mu- music compositions custom made from by actual rock bands and things like that but this suits the character without being too out of the box I like it. It's very catchy. Yeah, it's the thing that I always say with with a good entrance music that you know you know exactly who is coming out within the first one and a half seconds of that music sure. being played. Especially, and that's so important. Especially when you don't have three quarters of the roster coming out to new metal by the same three bands. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> right. I have to say a huge thank you to Doug for coming. Well, not just coming on, coming back to uh, to redo this it is very kind of you, and we are extremely grateful for you giving up your time once again. 
No, thanks. Thank you, Chuck, for having me on. It's been a it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, much much appreciated, and I appreciate you weathering what had to be a uh, a farce up there on the volcanic ash debacle. <laughs> it's up there, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. almost equivalent, really. Yeah. It Sorry, just doesn't man. have much. Uh, he doesn't have much luck with flying through America. Maybe we no. should. Yeah. Um, but um, if people want to um, find you on social media, how can they? Where can they reach you? Oh, they can reach me on Twitter at Doug Williams UK or Instagram, which is Doug Williams GB. And, and is that because I'm right in thinking there's an American footballer or someone called Doug Williams as well? Is that where the UK bit comes from? Uh, there is, but I don't think it was anything to do with that. I just thought I thought I stuck the UK on there anyway. <laughs> ah, see, always the ambassador, Douglas, even, even on social media. Great there stuff. We well, thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you ever so much for downloading us wherever you get your podcasts from. You can follow us on Facebook. Uh, at facebook.com forward slash because WCW or on Twitter at because WCW. If you are indeed locked in, self-isolating because of coronavirus, then don't forget, this is a golden era for podcasts. So please uh, sit back and download our entire back catalogue of all 50 plus episodes that you can find on uh, wherever you got this podcast from. So on behalf of Liam Happ, this is me, the Twisted Genius, Dean Ayer, saying thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you ringside.